0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning on our last day outside. Uh, We got not a lot of sunshine, but we got a lot of humidity, and so we'll be sweating either way, uh, which is a fitting way to end this summer outside here in the parking lot. But uh, yeah, you know, originally we had planned on finishing up our series in the book of Philippians today. Uh, But as I got into it this week and as I started to study, I just realized uh, that I was not going to be able to cover it fully in the way uh, that we would want. And so instead, we're going to finish up next week. Um, But before we look at our passage today, um, I just want us to think about this for a second. You know, if we would go around the parking lot here and ask uh, each other to give one word to describe the average American or even one word to describe American culture in general, uh, I'm fairly certain. Like I I would bet a decent amount of money uh, that although I wouldn't bet. Right. Because we don't do that. Uh, No, just kidding. Um, I, I would bet that one word that most likely would not come out of any of our mouths to describe the average American or American culture is the word content. In fact, one article I read this week, this guy was talking about how it's so common uh, to hear uh, people and in particular politicians talk about how uh, regular people or regular Americans are always falling behind, that they're struggling to make it. And yet the reality is, is that there's not really evidence to support that claim. In fact, the evidence would suggest the opposite of that. Now to be fair, the author of the article does acknowledge and, and did recognize that we are, you know, things are far from perfect. We're not living in a utopia. Of course there's room for improvement, particularly when it comes to things like healthcare or education. But even still, the reality is right now in general, we are the wealthiest and the most well off we have ever been. For example, he points out that the average American income has risen drastically in real terms in the last forty years. Not only our income though, but also the average American home is now 1,000 square feet bigger than it was just 40 years ago, despite the fact that our family sizes are smaller than ever. As well, not only uh, again, income or housing, but when it comes to food, the average American diet is now 500 more calories per person than it was 40 years ago. Now, I don't want to be insensitive because surely there are people and there are families out there who are in fact struggling, who uh, are experiencing real need. But if we can just be real for a moment, or if we can be honest, materialistically, things are pretty good right now for most people. I mean, even coming out of a global pandemic, the most recent stats tell us that the vast majority of Americans own smartphones. In fact, in February, as of February 2021, 85% of Americans have them. And this fact and this reality kind of hit me the other day. I was taking my kids to the swimming pool and I was thinking, oh, I need to leave my phone in the car uh, so they won't get stolen. Because uh, I grew up in a small town where things just got stolen. And, and so I sort of have that mindset. I was like, oh, I just need to, you know, leave my phone in the car. At the very least, I need to do the old hide it in the toe of your shoe trick, right? Because no one would ever think to look... And a shoe for something valuable. But uh, but anyway, I, uh, so I was, th- I was sort of going down that pathway and thinking that. And then all of a sudden it kind of hit me like, oh, wait, never mind. I mean, no one's probably going to beat up or steal my slightly beat up and older iPhone. In fact, the majority of people, including teenagers, probably have a newer and nicer one than I do. Now, I guess they could always steal it and just sell it and make a little bit of money, but even still, it was kind of this weird realization where it was like, oh, wait, I guess these aren't as uncommon or valuable as they used to be. And so instead of leaving it in my car, I just sort of threw it in the pull bag and, and went inside. Now, in the article that I, I just referenced, uh, the, the author goes on to conclude this and talking about sort of comparing where we are at today compared to just 40 years ago. He writes this. So has this abundance induced thankfulness on our part? Has it induced awe and wonder at the utter fantastic situation and an appreciation for how rare it is even compared to the rest of the world today, let alone 40 years ago? Does the average American, let alone the perhaps slightly poorer American, realize that they live a materially comfortable a more materially comfortable life than the czars of Russia just 100 years ago the answer to the above is no we have not a clue how good we have it and the fact that we do not know is indicative of the profound crisis of spirit that is making itself felt in this country now, perhaps you disagree or perhaps you think he's being too harsh or overly dramatic, but, but I'm not sure that he is. Again, if you and I just look around us, whether it's on social media or at work or on TV, it is obvious that we are by and large a complaining, discontent, entitled generation and culture. And you see, I think part of the reason for that is because for most of us, we have bought into this lie. This sort of uh, American dream lie that if I just had uh, just a little bit more, if I could just achieve just a little bit more, make a little bit more money, then I would finally be content. Like a donkey chasing a carrot on a stick, many of us believe if I could just reach this goal, or if I could just make this much more, or if I could just finally get into shape or stick to a workout routine or a diet plan, then I would be happy then I would be satisfied, but the truth is, it, it never works, right? Like the, the carrot just keeps dangling in front of our faces, always just slightly out of our reach, but even with that knowledge and understanding, we, it doesn't keep many of us from still pursuing and chasing it, and so because of that, we have crazy thoughts like, well, you know, the beach vacation in Florida was nice, um, but, you know, it, it would be even better if I could go to Hawaii, right? Or, or you know, the Honda Civic I'm driving, it's reliable, it looks decent, it gets me where I need to go. But man, if I just had a Tesla, or man, if I just had that sweet new Corvette that kind of looks like a Lamborghini, then and finally, then I would be content. No, you won't. You, you know how I know you won't? Well, for one, I think many of us have tried this and we've actually got the thing that we thought would make us happy only to realize that it doesn't. But even more than that, the testimony of those who have quote unquote made it or who have reached the pinnacle of success, either career wise or money wise or fame wise, many of them tell us that this is not the key to contentment. I mean, very famously, Jim Carrey, the actor, once said this, he said, I wish that everyone could get rich and famous in everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady, the well-known quarterback in the NFL, he said something very similar to this in an interview with 60 Minutes years ago, uh, back when he only had three Super Bowl rings. In the interview, he said this, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's cracked up to be. I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? You know, after this interview, a few years after this, Brady was asked what his favorite Super Bowl ring was at the time, and he replied by saying, the next one. Now, we might hear that, and we might think, well, you know, Tom Brady, he's just driven, he's type A, he's hes a winner, he's a champion, and I'm sure that's part of it, but I think he's also a man who's being honest about the disappointment And the discontentment that he has felt at having achieved what he thought would make him happy, only to discover that it's not what he thought it was. In fact, in that 60 Minutes interview that I talked about, the reporter asked him after he says, there's got to be more than this. The interviewer said, so what's the answer? And in a very genuine but sad way, Brady responded by saying, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And look, Brady and Jim Carrey, they're not just these isolated figures or isolated celebrities who got caught being interviewed on a bad day. No, this seems to be the collective testimony of those who have reached fame, who have reached fortune, only to in the end be confused and disappointed that it didn't live up to what they thought it would be. Right? Like there's even a whole book in our Bibles dedicated to talking about this very thing it's called Ecclesiastes. I mean, King Solomon, the author of the book, he had everything that you and I might be tempted to think would make us happy or would make us content. I mean, money, he's got it. Fame, he's got it. Power, he's one of the most powerful man in the world at the time, so he's got it. Sex, I mean, the dude had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He could sleep with a different woman every night of the week for almost three years straight. And so sex, yes, he's got it. And so how does all of this make him feel? Well, if you read Ecclesiastes, it appears it makes him feel severely depressed, right? Like, remember what he says there in chapter one of the book. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or some translations say they're meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And so with that, the truth is, is that discontentment is not just a poor person's problem. It's not just a rich person's problem. It's not just an average American person's problem. No, discontentment is a human problem. And we see it start all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? Like here they are in a garden full of yeses. And in that garden full of yeses, they choose the one thing that they were told they could not have. And since that moment, discontentment has been one of our main struggles and temptations in life. However, though, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to uh, show us what contentment looks like and how you and I can find it. And so if you will, go ahead and turn now to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 13. And once you find it either in your Bible or in the Bible app, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. Again, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul writes this, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you this morning. God, we come to you and recognize that we do struggle with this temptation of being discontent. And so, Father, I just pray now by the power of your spirit that you would come and you would revive our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to see and to know and to understand and to live out what it takes in order for us to be content in you. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can go ahead and take a seat. Well, again, just to sort of set the context here and to remind you of, of, of the context of the book in general, but also specifically as it relates to this passage. Uh, remember now, Paul is in prison. Most likely he's in Rome and he's awaiting trial. And, and I don't remember if we've talked about this before, but the way that the Roman prison system worked was that the prisoners themselves were responsible for providing for all of their needs. And so that would mean like things like clothing or food or, or whatever else you might need to live, they had to come up with. And so unless you were independently wealthy, what this meant was you had to rely on the support of friends and family in order to meet your needs. And so they would have to bring you whatever you needed in order to survive. And what we discover in this book of Philippians is that the Philippian church did this very thing for Paul. They gathered up some of their resources from amongst themselves, and they sent a guy from the church by the name of Epaphroditus to Paul in order to deliver this gift, in order to bring Paul the resources that he need while in prison. And again, we've talked about this before, but this was one of, if not the main reason and main purpose behind Paul writing this letter in the first place. In other words, he's wanting to acknowledge the gift that they sent, and he's wanting to write them back and say, thank you. However, though, as we begin to see here, uh, and we'll see this even more later on in the chapter, um, Paul's thank you note, uh, it comes across a little awkward. It comes across a little bit complicated. And I think the reason for that is because Paul doesn't want the Philippians to think that he is using them for their gifts. Or in other words, Paul is always very sensitive to uh, people getting the wrong idea that he's in ministry for the money. In fact, if you look at some of Paul's other letters, where, uh, particularly those sections where he talks about himself receiving money or benefiting from his gospel work, it's obvious that he's very sensitive to that, that it makes him uncomfortable. Because again, he did not want to be accused of being a charlatan, one who was out to get rich off of the gospel. And so because of that, instead of just coming out and saying, you know, thank you guys so much, you, you saved my life, I don't know how I could have made it without you. Instead, Paul kind of qualifies a thank you, and he even uses it as an opportunity to teach the Philippians themselves a lesson on contentment. And so let's just begin to walk through the passage now, and then let's see what it is that Paul shows us and teaches us about this area of contentment. And from what we just read in verses 10 to 13, we see that Paul gives us four insights into what it looks like to be content and how you and I can pursue it. And the first insight that he gives us is that being content is actually something that you and I have to learn. As a matter of fact, he actually uses that word twice in both verse 11 and in verse 12. Verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. So again, here is Paul. He's saying, look, Philippians, I'm I'm thankful that you sent me a gift. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that you were thinking about me. But look, guys, whether you sent a gift or not, I was going to be all right. And the reason that I'm going to be all right is because I have learned how to be content. Now, as you think about that word learn and the idea of learning something, uh, there can be quite a range of, of what that means or of that process and how you and I come to know what we know. What I mean by that is, for example, I, when I was probably about five or six, learned that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Now, learning that didn't take a whole lot of effort or work uh, in order to, to come to know that. Rather, very simply, my parents or some teacher along the way shared with me that historical fact. And because it wasn't that complicated, I memorized it. And now, all of these years later, I still know that George Washington was the first president of the United States. However, though, in contrast to, to that type of learning, I, I have been trying to learn how to play the guitar for about 15 years now. And it's been one sad, pathetic journey, but I I am now, after 15 years, I can now play a couple songs, kind of, sort of, you might recognize, like, oh, yeah, that sort of sounds like that one song, you know? And it's been a long and sometimes painful process. You know, learning the guitar, your fingers have to build up blisters on them, and it just hurts, and you got to persevere, and again, it takes, or at least it has taken me a long time. You see, learning guitar or some other musical instrument is very different than learning a historical fact. And when Paul uses the word learn here, I think he has something in mind more like that. Again, it's something that came about us uh, through a long process, not something that he discovered in a moment. No, for Paul, this type of learning, it took a long time. It took a lot of suffering and disappointment and hardship. But in the end, according to his own testimony here, he is telling us that he did, in fact, learn how to be content. Look, I don't know about you, but as I think about Paul's life and when I think about what it took, perhaps, for him to learn contentment, it makes me a little bit scared. I mean, here is Paul. He's chained up in prison. He's facing the death penalty. He's basically lost everything. And he's like, yep, you know what, guys? I, I have finally learned how to be content. And again, at least for me, as I thought about this week, I'm like, man, I, that's one lesson I'm not sure I'm ready to learn yet, even though I, I know that I need to. It looks like a very painful lesson. And yet, as we'll talk about later, it seems like that that pain, that suffering, that long, that, that long process, it's part of what it takes in order for us to get there. And so that's the first insight about contentment that Paul gives us. It has to be learned. The second insight that he gives us about contentment is that it's a secret. In other words, what Paul is getting at here, I think, is that uh, in verse 12, when he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, is that contentment is something that is hidden from us. In other words, it's unnatural. It's not obvious. It's not intuitive to us. You see, one thing that's interesting uh, about Paul using this word secret here is that it's the same word and the same idea that the Greco-Roman mystery religions of Paul's day, uh, they would use this kind of language and this kind of imagery to talk about some of their theology and, and, and how they would come to know certain things. It's a little bit, you know, sort of in our own day, something like Scientology or the Masons, right? You have this whole idea and language around secrets. And yet here, Paul kind of takes that idea and he even borrows that language. And, and yet this time he applies it to the topic of contentment. And so that's one way that it's a secret in sort of a hidden sense. But I think another way that he means here that it's a secret is that it's something that you and I really want to know. It's something we want to to be informed of, right? Like, remember when you were a kid and someone was like, hey, guess what? I got a secret. Unless you were unusually mature for your age, you responded by, what is it, right? Like, tell me the secret I, I got to know, because that's what secrets do. They pique our interest. They make us curious. I mean, Tom Brady even expressed that same sentiment in the 60 Minutes interview, Remember when the guy was like, "So Brady, what, what, what is it? What, what is it then?" And he just says, "Man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew." And again, here's Paul over here, like, guys, guess what? I know the secret. I've figured it out. I've gone through the initiation rites. I've learned the secret to being content. Which brings us to our third insight that Paul gives us here, and and that is that Paul tells us that contentment is not found where we normally think that it's found. I mean, Paul has already told us that contentment is something that we have to learn. He's even told us that it's a secret, but we see here that he blows up any notion of contentment being found in our circumstances, which is by default what most of us believe. I mean, for some of us, we believe the lie that we will be content when we finally reach some new stage of life. I know that I have fallen into this one in the past and probably still do. You see, when I was a teenager, it was like, oh, I just can't wait until I'm 16 when I can finally drive, I can have my own car, I can have some more freedom. And then that came and went and it was like, you know, that's good. But what I'm really looking forward to is when I turn 18. Right, Because when I turn 18, then I can finally vote, I can buy cigarettes, I can graduate high school. And then that came and went, and it was like, you know what, cigarettes are kind of nasty, and voting's not all that great either. And so what I really can't wait for is when I turn 21. Because then I'll finally be able to go and do whatever I want, except rent a car. And, and But then I turned 21, and I moved out, and, and it was like, okay, that, that's good. But then it was like, well, I can't wait till I'm done with with school, right? I'm so sick of school. I've been in school since I was five. And so when I'm finally done with college, then I'll be content. And so I graduated college and it was like, well, actually, what I'm really looking forward to is getting married. And then that happened. And it was like, well, now I can't wait till I have kids, right? Like we just, it's going to be great to finally have kids and then I'll be content. And then we had four kids and it changed. And I was like, now I can't wait for these kids to move out when... What's the earliest you can kick a kid out of your house? Then I'll be content and on and on it goes, right? We can fall into that trap of always looking to the next life stage. And when we do that, it causes us to always live in the future, which means that we're rarely able to enjoy the present moment and to be in the present moment so again, this is how some of us, what discontentment looks like, we're always looking for that new and next stage of life. However, though, for others of us, it's less about what stage of life we're in, and it's more about material possessions. I mean, we've already talked about this one a little bit, but, but again, this is that idea of, of, I just need a little bit more. If I had just a little bit more, then I would be content. I heard one guy admit and express what I've often felt on a Black Friday. He said this. He says, I pick up Black Friday ads, the the newspaper ads, to search for something to need, which is very different from searching for something you actually need, right? Like you're just flipping through like, all right, oh, I didn't know I needed that. Now I I need this thing. Actually, forget Black Friday. I mean, this is what Facebook Marketplace does to me every day. And man, again, I, I can fall into this trap. Unfortunately, I could, give you, I could give you multiple examples of what this looks like in my life. But, but one that uh, came out recently that my wife was making fun of me for was in the area of headphones. And the reason she was making fun of me was because I was giving her a pair of my old headphones, which is so nice, right? Like I'm being generous. I'm like, here, have some new headphones because I secretly bought some other ones, you know? And the reason for that, the problem is I have these weird teeny tiny ears and I don't know if like the insides are deformed or what, but I can't seem to find uh, headphones that don't hurt my ears. Like I'm, you know, the kind that sit inside your ear hole, I, they just, they end up hurting my ears after just 10 minutes or so. And I know that you can get the big, huge ones that fit over your ears, but I don't want to look like I'm working on, you know, the deck of an aircraft carrier, you know, calling in airplanes or something. Um because they're just big and bulky. And so because of that, I've been on this quest for multiple years of looking for the perfect headphones. And I'm not sure, but I think I maybe found them. Now, don't hold me to that, because I'm sure I'll have a different pair next year, but but the pair I found recently are what are considered bone conduction headphones, which means that instead of sitting directly inside your ear, they sort of loop around your ear, and then they sit right here on your temple, and somehow, I don't know how it works, but the sound travels through there, and, and you can hear. Now, if you've not seen them, I know that sounds weird, but they actually do work, at least for me. Now I can wear them for long periods of time without my ears hurting. And so thank you, Dale Schuller, for exposing me to something else that I needed to buy in my life. But either way, if I'm being honest with myself, I know that part of the problem is not just that I can't find the perfect headphones but rather, like a lot of you, I can be tempted to buy stuff I don't need in order to try to fill some void or hole that I feel inside. And even though I know it doesn't work, I still come back to it over and over again. I still chase that dangling carrot. And look, this is a real challenge for us living in 21st century America. I mean, between the advancements in technology and also the privacy invasion that we all experience... I think that we are almost to the point where if you even think about something in your own mind, you will see an ad for it on your phone in the next couple minutes, right? It's almost that bad. I mean, if you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I think we're almost out of paper towels. You're going to see an ad for paper towels from Amazon in just a couple minutes. But it's not just ads. I mean, even social media itself creates for many of us this sense of discontentment. And the primary reason that it does that is because it tempts us to compare ourselves and our lives and our possessions over and against others. And with that temptation of comparison to others, it often leads us either to despair or to feeling insecure or it uh, leads us to feeling envy and to coveting what others have. I mean, people have even joked and have compared uh, Pinterest, if you know what that is, they've compared that to kind of female pornography, because you just have these ladies scrolling it and looking at all these beautiful kitchens and hairdos and vacation spots, and it just creates envy, it creates covetousness in us. And so for some of us, we look for contentment in possessions. Some of us look for it in a life stage, but for others of us, we look for contentment in people. We can think to ourselves, you know, if I was only married, if I found that special someone, or if I was only friends with this group or that group, then I would finally be content. And yet it's simply not true. I mean, Paul even seems to talk about that here when he's basically in verse 10 saying, Philippians, you know, thank you for the gift, but don't get confused and think that I'm depending on you or I'm looking to you as my source of contentment. Now in saying that, that doesn't mean that we don't need people or that relationships in our lives are unimportant, but what it does mean is that they can't bear the burden and they can't be the source of our contentment. And so again, some of us are tempted to look for and to long for a different stage of life or a change of circumstances, or some of us are tempted to look at possessions or income for contentment. Some of us look to others. And yet to all of that, Paul is like, no, guys, you are missing it. You are barking up the wrong tree. That is not where contentment is found. Again, in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Again, he's like, look, guys, I know how to be in need. I know how to have plenty. I know what it's like to be well-fed, but I also know what it's like to be hungry. And yet, whether I'm in a season or circumstance with plenty, or whether I'm in a season or circumstance where I have want, it doesn't matter because that's not where contentment is found. So that leads us to the last insight from Paul here on contentment, and it's this. Okay, Paul, so where is contentment found? In other words, what is the secret? What is it that you and I need to learn? Well, he tells us here, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I know some of you are like, that's in the Bible? I thought Tim Tebow made that up, right? Remember he always had Phil uh, 413 underneath his eyes when he played football? And actually, if you pay attention, a lot of athletes have this written on them or tattooed on them or written on their shoes or something like that. I mean, this is perhaps one of the most well-known but most misunderstood verses and perhaps abused verses in the Bible. This verse has nothing to do with you being able to make a free throw or you being able to throw a touchdown pass. This verse is not a blank check or a guarantee that you can do whatever it is you want to do and Christ will give you the strength for it. No, in context, this verse is specifically talking about Christ giving you and I and giving Paul the strength that he needed in order to be content. You see, what Paul learned, what Paul discovered is that contentment is not found in people or possessions or prestige or pain-free life, but rather contentment is found in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. You see, one thing that's so amazing and even interesting about this passage, and I didn't know this before I studied it this week, is that the Greek word that Paul uses here for contentment is actually a word that before this time was only used by the Greek Stoic philosophers. And according to scholar Walter Hansen, here is what the Stoics taught and believed about contentment. He writes this, in Stoic philosophy, contentment denotes the one who becomes an independent man, sufficient to himself and in need of no one else. The goal for the Stoic was that a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. By the exercise of reason over emotions, the Stoic learns to be content. For the Stoic, emotional detachment is essential in order to be content. You see, if we assume that definition and that mindset in terms of what contentment means and how we achieve it, which is what the Philippians would have done since that was what was being taught in their culture in that day, then what Paul is saying here in this passage is absolutely revolutionary. I mean, Paul is not arguing for self-sufficiency or for emotional detachment, but instead he is arguing that true contentment is found and it comes through trusting in Jesus Christ. Again, another commentator in talking about this word and this idea and how it would relate to their culture, he said this, he said, Paul Christianized the term using it to refer to an attitude of mind independent of externals and dependent only on God. He was not advocating godless self-sufficiency as the source of contentment. No, Paul believed that true sufficiency is Christ's sufficiency. I mean, I know this is kind of a cheesy statement, but when you look at Paul's life, I think you really see it, uh, it borne out or, or the truth of it revealed. And the statement that's a little bit cheesy is this, you don't know Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And again, here's Paul and he's in that kind of a place. He's at the end of his life. He's in prison. He's facing execution. And yet he's telling the Philippians and he's telling us, you know, guys, true contentment comes from knowing and trusting and finding your strength in Christ, not in yourself and certainly not in and your circumstances. And unfortunately, the reality is, is that you and I usually can't get to this place without going through some trials, without going through some pain and disappointment and suffering in the process. You know, this summer, the, the pastors and their wives, we've been going through this class or this course together called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it's based on a book by that same title. But a couple weeks ago in our study, one of the chapters we went through was called The Journey Through the Wall. And basically what the chapter is about and what Pete Scazzaro, the author, argues for is that God takes each one of us through these various moments in our life, these various trials, these moments of suffering, what Scazzaro would call the wall, but what previous generations have called the dark night of the soul. And the reason that God will bring us to a wall or the reason he'll have us journey through a dark night of the soul is to change us, to change our character, to transform us by causing us to get to that place where either we have to surrender to him or we walk away. And it gets us to that place where we're able to trust him in spite of our circumstances. And often as part of that, what God is doing is he is helping us take our hands off of things that we believe we have to hold on to in order to be content. In other words, what the wall or the dark night of the soul does is it exposes our idols. It exposes what you and I have put our hope in, what we've put our happiness in. And in that process of hitting a wall or coming up against a wall, God gives you and I the opportunity to let go of those things and to surrender them back to God. A.W. Tozer, and he's one of my all-time favorite authors, but he talks about this same concept, this same idea in his book, The Pursuit of God. And in that book, he has this great uh, chapter called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And here's what Tozer says about it. He says, there's within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution." You see, what Tozer is getting at there is that ever since the fall of man, we have been tempted to pursue and to put our hope in things, whether it be possessions or good circumstances or whatever, instead of enjoying those things as good gifts from God, we have made them essential to our lives to the point that they have actually taken the place of God. And so because of that, and because God loves us too much to leave us in that delusion, he will occasionally let you and I come up against a wall. He'll let us walk through a dark night of the soul in order to see if our contentment is found in him or if it's found in these false substitutes. Again, Tozer later on in the chapter writes this. He says, there can be no doubt that this possessive clinging to things is one of the most harmful habits in life. Because it is so natural, it is rarely recognized for the evil that it is. But its outworkings are tragic. We are often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved relatives and friends. But we need have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy, but to save. Now listen to this. Everything is safe, which we commit to him. And nothing is really safe, which is not so committed. You see, again, contentment comes when you and I learn to trust and to surrender ourselves to Christ fully. And so to close here, very briefly, how do we do this? How do we get to this place of surrender? How do we learn to trust Christ with all that we have and all that we are? Well, at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to our friendship with Jesus. I mean, I don't know how your relationships work out there in the world, but but for me, I'm at this point in my life where I really only trust people I know super well, right? Like the older you get, the more you get burnt by others that it's like, I I need to, and and even in knowing someone well, you can get burnt. But, But again, it's like, if I know you super well and I can observe your life and be with you, I am more likely to trust you. And the only way that we can know someone and know their characters is by spending time with them. And as it relates to our friendship with Jesus, I, I think practically what this looks like is us taking time each day, perhaps even multiple times a day where we stop what we're doing and we slow down and, and maybe we open the word and we read the scriptures or maybe we spend some time in prayer or we journal or we worship and again, maybe we just do this in the morning, but, but again, in this book we're reading, Scazzaro argues for this thing called the daily office, where you do this multiple times throughout the day. Maybe you do it when you wake up, and then on your lunch break, and then maybe later on in the evening or right before bed, right? Because I, you know, for some of us, you read in the morning, and then by lunch, you forgot what it was you read in the Word. And so again, instead of maybe just one time or not at all, instead, maybe schedule into your life multiple times and it doesn't have to be long. Maybe at lunch, it's just five minutes of just, you read a Psalm and you just sit before the Lord's presence and, and ask the Lord to speak to you. But maybe not just every day, but maybe in fact, maybe we get back to an old biblical concept called the Sabbath, right? Where we set aside a whole day of the week to just enjoy those good gifts from the Lord, to enjoy the The Lord's presence. You see, one of the ways that you and I can grow in contentment, and one of the ways that we display we are content, is by regularly slowing down and stopping and taking time to be with the Lord. You see, if you're having a hard time being content and trusting Christ, it is most likely because you have looked to and you have put your hope in something other than Him. Because if you and I truly knew him, and I don't mean that necessarily in like a salvation sense, but but more like in an intimacy and friendship sense, if we truly knew him, then we would in fact trust him because he is trustworthy. And look, that trustworthiness, uh, it, it extends to the point, even if he takes everything away from us. I mean, look, the reality is, is that Paul's not getting out of this jail cell. No, this is going to end with him getting his head cut off. But even still, he can look at us as he does in chapter one and say that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You see, the apostle had that friendship with Jesus. And because he had that, he could be content whether he lived or whether he died, whether he got stuck in prison or whether he walked out. Paul knew Jesus well. And because he knew Jesus well, he could therefore trust Jesus fully. And in trusting Jesus fully, he found the strength he needed in order to face whatever it was that came his way. You see, later on in the New Testament, there's this really interesting verse which talks about contentment, and it's Hebrews chapter 13. And in verse 5, the writers of Hebrews says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. See, this is what it's getting at. Christ's presence is the pathway to contentment. In order for you and I to be content, we have to be in his presence. And we have to be in his presence consistently where we look to him. And as we do that, he will strengthen us. He will satisfy us. And in the end, you and I will be able to, like Paul say, we have learned how to be content. As the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul's life. And Lord, we, we know both through his example and through this command in Hebrews that, that, that being content is possible. It is something that we can, it's something we've been called to, and it's something that we can achieve by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I just pray for myself and I pray for my friends here. Lord, help us to stop chasing things that will not satisfy us. Help us to stop wasting our time and our money on things that will not lead us to that place of contentment. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be satisfied in you? Because then you is the only place that we will find contentment and satisfaction and joy and so we ask you would help us now